0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast, and I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds-Nuttle. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey everybody. And welcome to today's podcast episode. It is an interview with Skip Horner. You may not be familiar with Skip because he's not in the limelight. He hasn't written books. He hasn't interviewed with tons of media outlets and he hasn't done any documentaries. However, he has his achievements as a Mountaineer. And his greatest achievement was that in 1992, when he finished Mount Everest, he became the first mountain guide to guide clients to all of the seven summits. Skip is local. He lives right down the road. And it was fun to interview someone that comes from my area. There's one other mountaineer in Montana that I would love to interview. So Conrad, if you hear this, hit me up. Skip is a delightful person and he's been guiding. This is his 50th year guiding. That is a really long time. And we talk about the commercialization of the mountains how and why it started, his expeditions to Mount Everest in 89 and 92, Uh, how commercialization has changed, how guiding has changed, and of course we talk about death, which is a common thing when you talk about Mount Everest because it's a reality the favorite part of this interview for me is the last 15 minutes because skip talks about Rob hall and tells a story about him, but he also calls me out and rightfully so. And listening back on it, cause I've listened to it a, a couple of times. He's right. He's absolutely right. We need to talk about the death and not shy away from it. Not only to remember these people that have died in mountaineering accidents, but also to learn from them, especially this newer generation. I really hope that you guys enjoy this interview. I don't have any housekeeping stuff for you guys today just the interview because you guys know i could talk on and on this interview is a little long so definitely bear with me but i hope you enjoy it and let me know what you think and here we go as you guys know i'm a very outdoorsy person always looking for new gear and to discover new brands That's why I love my nomadic subscription box. You can get it as low as $29.99 per month. And they have both monthly and quarterly boxes. This month's box, the theme was stay alert. It included five items, the buff cool net UV neckwear gaiter, the Celestron up close G two monocular. The right in the rain on the go notebook, which is waterproof. A go macro macro bar, mini blueberry. That was an interesting granola bar and the tech new original skin cleanser that you can use on your skin after exposure to poison ivy, poison oak and poison sumac. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off any order from their website use the code Everest at checkout for 10% off. And you can find the link and the code in the description of this podcast. Hi everybody. And I wanted to welcome Skip Horner to the All About Everest podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Skip.
1: You're welcome. Nice to be here.
0: And Skip actually lives just down the road from me. I'm surprised I haven't interviewed him before. And he's kind of the old school uh, mountaineering. He was climbing in the late eighties, early (laughs) nineties, before all of these young folks that we've been uh, seeing lately. So Skip, tell me what got you into mountaineering?
1: Oh, well, it was in my soul. Um, I don't know where it came from, but as soon as I graduated from college, I moved directly to Colorado, um, mostly just to ski. I wanted to be a ski bum. But while I was there, I became enamored with the mountains, and uh, I stayed in Colorado for a number of years and began climbing the following year. Um, Along the same time, I got a job uh, rowing rafting trips in the Grand Canyon, and I did that for several summers. And through that job, I met some people who ran uh, trekking and climbing trips, mostly in the Himalayas, but all over the world, uh, mountain travel. And they hired me to work in Nepal and South America and some other places. And uh, I just began climbing every chance I got. I'd be river running for a few months and then I'd run off into the mountains somewhere and climb. And uh, because I was guiding in the Grand Canyon and I was ski guiding in Colorado, uh, the mountain guiding, the climbing guiding just became a natural progression for me to follow. Um, So around the late 70s is when I actually began guiding mountains in a big way. Uh, So that by the time um, Everest became accessible to more than just big international expeditions, one per season, um, we began thinking about taking clients up there. Uh, Of course, typical mountain guide, we don't have a lot of money, so we would have a hard time funding our own expedition. So it made sense to come up with um, uh, appropriate climbers uh, who had the money and had the skills to to come with us to go up the mountain so that's uh, our trip in 1989 um, could possibly be the first actual commercial expedition to the mountain we were on the on the tibetan side of a friend of mine a organized trip Burleson uh, came along as an observer um, Todd, of course, owns, uh, started and owns at Alpine Ascents International. Verntejas was the other guy beside myself on the trip, and we had about eight clients uh, who were strong, um, and this will become an ongoing discussion we'll have today about uh, the clients who go to Everest. But just as an example, back then, uh, Dolly Fever was a client on the trip. She was already a successful mountain guide in her own right went on to become the first American woman uh, to climb the Seven Summits. She climbed Everest a few years later. Two or, or three other members of that trip ultimately went on to climb to the top of Everest. We didn't make it to the top that time. Uh, two teams made it to the high camp at 8,000 meters, but we both got blown off the ridge. It was late, it was middle of October by that time, and it was too late, uh, but it was a strong team. And um, we were all proud of our achievement. Uh, because it was uh, such an unusual effort to have guides and clients on the same trip working together. Another interesting aspect if- let, oh, let me go on. ahead. Uh, another really interesting aspect of that, which is a one time thing, which we thought might be the next big thing, turned out to be not, we use liquid oxygen instead of gaseous oxygen. We brought liquid oxygen, uh, which was Mike Dunn's brainchild. We brought two big barrels, stainless steel, really insulated barrels of liquid oxygen at minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And Then we had uh, 20 liter containers that we just open the spigot and liquid oxygen poured into these containers and we sealed them off. They were also obviously very well insulated, which we carried up the mountain, up to the north call at 23,000 feet. And there we had smaller five liter containers where we poured them into. So when it gets warmer than 300 degrees below zero, oxygen boils off and becomes a gas. And we had a system worked out that would transport that boiled off oxygen into a regulator that fed us oxygen just like regular oxygen Um, it was very expensive of course but we figured over time the cost would come down because of the improved technology and the the more demand for it Uh, as it turned out it wasn't all that practical we did use it one time one of our members uh, became um, was stuck in a tent with a stove going, and became uh, and carbon monoxide was getting him. So he it was at 23,000 feet on the North Col. So he pulled him out of the tent, slapped the, the mask on him, and sent him down. Um, and it worked fine. He could breathe the oxygen. He could he could feel the effect of having oxygen. Uh, it was well regulated, but we never really got to use it after that, and the idea never caught on which was kind of a shame because we thought it was such a a brilliant uh, concept and maybe it will in the future again, but um, never never did happen again.
0: So that trip in 89, it was on the Tibetan side and I don't think I've heard that the commercialization kind of started to fund your own expeditions, that it was kind of an ends to a mean. Um, Was it that way also for your expedition in 92?
1: Well, in 92, Todd had gotten Alpine ascents up and running. It was a pretty strong company even then. Uh, They had made one attempt on Everest uh, the year before. And I think Pete Athens summited that time. Um, But our trip in 92, May of 92 was a very strong team. It was Todd and Pete and Vern and me, four guides. We had um, 11 clients, 12 high altitude Sherpas, um, and the clients, again, were all legitimate clients. They had climbing resumes, they had been in the mountains before, they'd been at altitude. Um, Each of the four of us guides knew each of the clients had been with us on some climb before, so we could vouch for their suitability uh, to be on Everest, which, I don't believe is happening um, all the time these days, but back then we were pretty careful about who we were taking because it was still a very new thing, and Everest was still had the the mystique of of prior years where holy cow, to climb Everest was was the the most notable che- achievement you could ever have in your life, and which I think has been watered down quite a bit these days. But back then it was still an awesome undertaking uh, very unsure whether we would get to the top whether we would even even survive where now from a distance um, i haven't been back in quite a while but it seems like people go there with the expectation that they will climb to the top and that they will survive and then they'll come back home and go about their business um back then we had the feeling like like oh my god what are we in for here are we sure we're ready for this this was uh, um, a really big undertaking, and we took it very seriously. Not to say that it isn't taken seriously these days. I'm sure it is because it's still a dangerous place to be. But back in those days, I think there was more awe and perhaps more respect for the mountain than I'm seeing these days.
0: i can I can agree with that. And back then, too, it was a matter of you still needed to climb up there on your own tower. But now it seems like if you have the money and the funds, someone can literally drag you to the top. You're not carrying any of your gear. All you have, your whole job is just to walk and...
1: Walk and breathe. Yeah, walk and breathe. Pretty much. Right.
0: Walk and breathe.
1: You know, in in 89, we did have regular bottled oxygen. We had the French tanks that were state-of-the-art back then. Uh, which we used um, at least once to a comical extent of which I'll tell you if we have time. Um, but in 92, we we began using one liter a minute uh, to sleep on at the South Cull, and then we climbed at two liters a minute um, from the cull back to the cull, and then on down from there. Um, Breathing oxygen on Everest certainly isn't the same as going up without oxygen, but I think most people understand that uh, for safety reasons, it's, be- it's best for most people to breathe oxygen. Now, from what I understand, you can buy oxygen and start breathing it from camp Two, at whatever, 21,000 feet and have only a bottle of oxygen on your back all the way up and all the way down again. Um, so, yes you're climbing the mountain but no what you're really doing is bring the mountain down to your size rather than climbing up to the to the actual top of the mountain in its own in its own right
0: and during your era did they have a rope fixing team because nowadays you know every year there's a little team that goes up they fix the ropes all the way to the top but i believe when you climbed on let's see, what was it, in 92 from Nepal, they didn't have that.
1: That's correct, mostly. There was a team, um, the Khumbu doctors were just beginning then, um, but each team, and there were, I, I guess there were eight other expeditions on the mountain that year. Uh, each team sent up a couple of Sherpas ahead of time and figured out the route through the icefall fall and, and put the ladders in and fixed the ropes. Uh, then, as now, the the, the icefall is very active, and the and the route changes because of avalanches and suraks moving, and all. Uh, so we would each, uh, as as need be, we would go back up when our turn came, and refix the route. There wasn't a set team of Sherpas like there are now, whose only job was to fix and repair the icefall. We we each each of the expeditions to the best of our abilities. Would send Sherpas and sometimes guides up to to refix the route. So uh, we did have that established in '92. Beyond the top of the icefall, up to Camp One, um, up to the base of the Loci Face, you were on your own. You walked across, and there was a there became a beaten track. But the first few of us who went up uh, were picking our own way through the crevasses, and there were a couple of yawning crevasses that needed ladders placed horizontally across them which was an awesome experience. Um, there was a single, probably a seven millimeter nylon rope anchored at the foot of the Lhotse face that went up to camp three and then continued up um, up the Lhotse face and over to South Cull. So we did have a fixed rope in there, but it was just a very minimal thing. Um, and we kind of viewed it more as just kind of route finding rather than safety. Um, following the rope meant you were on the route. We attached to it, of course, with our ascender, uh, but we didn't really want to test it by falling on it because it was such a flimsy little rope. Um, above the south call, again, no ropes um, until we got to the base of the south summit, which all of a sudden turns quite steep. And there was a crevasse there and some really broken, soft, um, unconsolidated snow. And there was a fixed rope for about 100 feet up to the um, the South Summit, and then from the summit over to the foot of the at the Hillary Step, no rope. That really steep, awesome corniced ridge that you've seen where people traverse across heading toward the the Step, no rope. We were roped together. There were the, the day we summited, there were three of us: Vern and me and one client. Um, and Vern and I were taking turns leading each pitch. Um, It seems to me Vern led across that pitch, and then I led up the Hillary step uh, on the ropes. There were fixed ropes there. In fact, there were too many fixed ropes. There were several that were dangling. Some were frozen into old snow. Uh, We ended up actually hooking up to two different ropes with with both of our ascenders in case one broke on a fall. The other hopefully would hold us. And then we got to the top of the step and walked to the summit. No fixed ropes. So there were two main fixed ropes um, between the south, between the cull and the top in those days. I understand now that the entire route is fixed. Um, and I would say probably as it should be these days, because there are so many people, you'd have people wandering all around up there um, without knowing exactly where the route is. So that's probably a good thing now, considering all the climbers one really scary thing that happened while we were going up it was up above the balcony heading up toward the south summit somebody up above rob hall's team was up above us they were the ones who got out first that morning and they were you know 100 or 200 feet above us the whole way one of their team dropped his oxygen bottle and fortunately the slope had been angling so they were further over to the right above us and that bottle came rocketing down like a torpedo and it was maybe 50 feet away from us as it went down at terminal velocity and that would have gone right through somebody if you'd been in the way that was such a such a funny thing to see at first and then we're going holy shit that could have been bad so hopefully nobody drops an oxygen bottle with 200 people below them these days
0: there i there have been a couple of missteps that i've heard from usually it's rocks um someone had mentioned to me that they almost got kicked in the face with crampons because they were so, I think yeah, it was so on close the
1: sure i can believe um, that that's always scary to be climbing beneath somebody with crampons because you're looking right up at them and one little slip and it's right in your face
0: but other than that, I think you've just got the, you know, the regular risks that are up there, the um the avalanches, the slip and fall, the crevasse, all of those things, just your and of course, you know, the altitude sickness, which is always a risk. Um, and the weather and the weather and the weather. and the weather's a big thing. you know, if this year, from what I've heard and what I've looked up and researched, it was the coldest year in, I don't even know how long. Um, I've heard it was the coldest ever, but there's really nothing really? This that. Yeah, oh. uh, negative 45, 43, Ooh. depending Ooh. on who you Ooh. talk to. Ooh.
1: Was that the, the wind chill? That's counting wind chill. it must be.
0: Yes, and so there was a lot of frostbite more than normal about (laughs) double what it normally is and um, also well there was a lot of altitude related (laughs) stuff which could be inexperienced climbers and people who aren't (laughs) acclimatized but the cold the cold was a huge thing and people got stuck at camp for way too long
1: oh and then gets getting stuck up on the mountain behind in a line of rope at that that sounds so bad.
0: Yeah. I heard it was very miserable and very hard. And out of the four people that I've talked to that went up this year, two of them had pretty severe uh, frostbite.
1: Sure, and they, and they lost digits?
0: Um, it was undetermined as of yet. Um, one of them, her name is Gabby. She is a physician out in Australia. Um, she said that she felt, they felt that uh, she probably won't lose anything, but it's a really long recovery. They're still working on it, so they don't know yet.
1: Painful, too. It's painful. I've had frostbite. It it hurts when it's recovering.
0: Well, Montana got almost that cold in this last winter. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: We live with that, but we can go indoors here. I just put another log in the fire and, and sit close.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, But the other guy may, and he is a uh, piano player. um, And so he may be losing one or two appendages. He doesn't know yet. And he's from Israel. And so they don't have the experience with frostbite that maybe some, like a hospital in Colorado might have because Israel's in the desert. So it's still to be determined.
1: Well, youtube has some great videos on treating frostbite (laughs) i'm sure the doctors know (laughs) that
0: (laughs) oh uh, yeah absolutely um it's just different you know because it's not something that israeli doctors deal with i mean there's one small mountain in israel i think it's 2500 meters maybe or is that feet i mean it's lower than what we have so it's pretty low um what do you think the main differences are between guiding then and guiding now
1: first thing that comes to mind is they're probably making a lot more money than i made Um, as they should it's a dangerous thing to do and um huge amount of responsibility uh, enormous amount of skill required and experience required to to do that effectively so the guys and and the women who are guiding now um, I hope uh, have done their homework and done their background to to be there. Um, I do believe, and I'm just speaking in general terms, I'm sure there are people who are guiding there now who should not be guiding. I think it's uh, become such a cottage industry uh, guiding Everest that you can hang out your shingle and say, I'm a mountain guide, I'll take you up Everest. And uh, if you talk a good story and have a good website, People will believe you and um, follow you up, whether you know what you're doing or not. And it does seem like there are some up there who perhaps are fine mountain climbers, but there's a lot more to it than just being a good mountain climber to be a good guide. You've got to be able to not only take care of yourself but be, and not only take care of your clients, but be able to anticipate the problems that the clients are going to have. And that's a real skill that uh, doesn't come easily or naturally or quickly it takes I think a lot of time in the mountains with clients to be able to see them and to read them to understand what's going on to understand the the conditions that you're in and the condition they're in to know what they need Um, so I think some of the trouble that's going on on Everest these days is the fact that the people guiding them shouldn't be guiding them they 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 should not be where they're where they are and that's you might also add to that the the quality of the clients themselves because if they haven't had much experience in high altitude or in the mountains in general uh, they may be more prone to hire a a less expensive guide um, who offers a good deal and there you go you've got two inexperienced people uh, climbing this big hairy mountain and um danger lurks when that goes on
0: that seems to be the consensus is that it's really coming down to the guides and the experience that they have and um that that seems to be considered the main reason of why there have been so many deaths in the last couple of years excluding natural causes it's because the guides a are not experienced like they should be but also they're not responsible
1: right and they don't i i get the impression they don't feel the responsibility they i get the the feeling and again it's all I haven't been there to Noah, but I do read whatever I can whenever the Everest season is going on. It, it seems like they feel that the, these guides feel that since they're a strong mountain climber, then that's all it takes, and they and they're not really paying attention to the details that I have just mentioned about uh, reading their clients um, and reading the conditions and reading the weather in relation to their clients, not just in relation to themselves. Often. Um, these are sherpas who are now guiding these are um, uh, westerners um, foreigners who are mountain guides elsewhere or climbers elsewhere Uh, they know what what they can do with the weather that's happening right now or with the weather that maybe is coming in they may not be able to know how that weather or these snow conditions will affect the client And, and i think that's the the essence of guiding is not so much being a strong climber, but being a a guide where you can take care of your client. Your responsibility 100% is to that client. It's not to yourself, only in in as much as you got to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of the client. But that's a given. If you can't take care of yourself, you don't belong there. But to read the client, to know his abilities, his or her abilities um, in relation to existing conditions and incoming conditions. That's the essence. Um, I think often these clients or the guides are so bent on reaching the summit, they take chances they shouldn't take. Um, And this goes beyond just novice guides because after all, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher died up there um, and you wouldn't find more experienced, more capable, more caring guides than Rob Hall and Scott, Um, but they made a couple of bad decisions uh, and they died. Um, Huge loss to the climbing community, to the guiding community, but um, uh, there you go. That's the morality tale right there that even the best um, do make bad decisions. Uh, So given that, if you're not the best, you are more prone to making bad decisions than otherwise. So, oh my gosh. Go with a qualified guide if you're going to go. Pay the money and um, save your life or at least save your fingers and your toes.
0: Right. And uh, I was talking to um, Adrian Bollinger from Alpenglow and he was saying that even an injury to him is not not a successful trip. That when it comes to his clients, that if they do develop frostbite and, and... not even a death, just frostbite to him. It is not a successful trip. And he did not do what he was supposed to do as a guide for those clients. Um, That you really have to be responsible, know what you're doing and take care of that person because that's what you're paid to do and not risk yourself or them, but them because they are the client.
1: Totally true, I agree with that all the way. Um I've been on climbs where we've summited, but somebody got hurt. And I it, it's it's not a good feeling, even reaching uh, some remote, distant, very expensive summit. If somebody gets hurt along the way, um, somehow it boils down to being the guide's fault. It shouldn't happen. Even if he's not there, he should have anticipated whatever goes on. even if it's has if he has no direct responsibility, the guide the responsible guide is going to feel uh, feel bad about the climb to to look at it in in the memory and realize that that was not one of my best efforts
0: and you have a lot of experience guiding skip in fact you were the first person and tell me if i'm wrong that guided to all of the seven summits is that correct the very first one
1: Yep, that's correct. With with that Everest summit in '92, that was my seventh summit, and um, you know, in in '85 or '86, when Dick Bass's book came out, The Seven Summits, most of us in the climbing community hadn't even thought of the concept yet. It hadn't occurred to us to to be to climb the highest peak on all the seven continents. But it created such a stir in the mountain community that um we were all talking about it wow what a thing what a thing well by that time i had already guided two or three of the of the continental high points so i in my own mind i thought you know things are opening up out there in the mountains of the world karsten's pyramid was now being accessible everest was becoming more accessible to more people i'm going to try to be the first to guide the seven summits that was my goal um and I did it.
0: (laughs) If you were to climb Mount Everest again, which side would you pick? The north side or the south?
1: Uh, I'd probably choose a helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if I if I went back, this is totally theoretical, of course, at this point in my life, but I'd go back to the north side, to the Tibetan side that when I was up there on that north ridge, it was so intriguing looking up at the, especially at the second step and then the top and, and that the history of that route from all the early British expeditions, uh, I think that that's where I would go. Um, there are fewer people on the route as well, which is an attraction. Um, it's in China, which is a detraction, uh, but still the history of that route and the, the appeal of the route itself would bring me back to the north side.
0: That's interesting. I I don't think anyone's mentioned that so far as a reason to go back to the north, more of like it's safer because it's better regulated. So that's interesting. Um, Do you have any anecdotes or stories about being at base camp in 92 or some of the climbers that you climbed with um, during that time?
1: Right, Uh, one sad anecdote. I was on a a climbing expedition to the Indian Karakoram, uh, to a peak called Remo in 1986. It was 24,000 foot peak. It hadn't been climbed before. It was an Australian, uh, New Zealand expedition. I was the only American on the trip. Peter Hillary um, was the leader of that trip. And we had a really cool expedition. We didn't reach the top, but we got close and we all came back alive and in one piece. And among the people on that trip was a Indian climber called, whose name was Magan Bisa, who was um, almost like Queequeg in Moby Dick. He 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 had the, the mystical marbles in his hand and he was chanting quite a bit. And a very interesting man, I really liked him. He and I shared a tent for a while on that trip. He happened to be on an Indian expedition climbing Everest in 92, a base camp not too far from ours. And I would go over and hang out with Magan Bisa Sometimes when I was in base camp and I was over there one afternoon having a cup of tea and every all the Indians that were there were having a good time drinking tea and laughing. And they had a team up on the mountain that had been up there for a few days, um, which they hadn't heard from for a couple of days. And while I was there in that camp, a radio call came in from up above from another team radioing down to the Indians that their two members were found dead, that they had made an attempt to go from Camp 3 up to the South Cull, uh, and they hadn't made it. And they got apparently benighted, uh, lost their way and froze to death. And all of a sudden this Indian camp went from happy times to the most morbid, sad group of people I have ever been around, you can imagine. Their two friends who they had high hopes for were now dead and not just dead, but way up high. Did um, That was a, a real uh, reality check for me and for everybody there uh, when that came down, because I just pointed out that uh, this is nothing to mess around with. There's no that ego involvement um, is the wrong kind of involvement on this climb. Um, and that's pretty much, I think, what it came down to in, in that case. Um, I've stayed in touch with Magan Bisa, not so much lately, but for a while after that. And he, because of that experience, he quit climbing. And he was a strong climber. He was one of the better Indian climbers of the day. Uh, but he quit climbing, and he said that was enough for him. He did. He had too many responsibilities at home to to, to risk it. Um, I think if those two men had not died, Magan Bisa would have continued climbing and probably would have gotten to the top of Everest ultimately. But um, that was too much for him. I've never forgotten that that's uh you know we we in base camps we often take things sort of lightly because we're all here having fun and sometimes there's parties going on and people coming to visit and new friends being made and um talking about the route and all the stuff and other climbs we've done but then all of a sudden you've got to remember oh my god this is a big mountain up there and it does not care much about you um and you, we really need to be paying attention and not just uh, paying attention part of the time, but really paying attention all the time.
0: One of the themes when I talk to the mountaineers, especially those who are still out there, you know, climbing every year, they're on multiple expeditions, is the mortality. It's a common theme that we talk about and about how likely it is that you know i may talk to them now and in 3 years from now they're they're gone and this year was a wake up call for so many people because noel hana his death impacted many people in the climbing community it definitely made a lot of people wake up to that um and since you know since the 90s when you were guiding what do you do now
1: oh i'm still guiding I'm still guiding. Well, I'm, where do you guide? This is, oh, <laughs> this is my 50th year of mountain guiding right now. Um, I was down in Columbia earlier this year, uh, climbing, climbing, guiding. I'm not going up. Well, you know, after, well, I went up to Cho a few years later, after 92, 96, I climbed Cho O U, summited on my 49th birthday, which I was proud of. Ed Beasters and I were guiding that one. Um, in fact, that was supposed to be Rob Hall and me guiding Cho U that year. That was the year Rob died. He died in the spring we already had a, he had a group i had a group we were going to together to guide Cho Oyu. rob died um ed beasters took over the trip and so um, did that trip together and together um, but after climbing Cho Oyu, and i didn't use oxygen that time I, I summited with one client and without oxygen but it was uh I got a feel for what it's like to be at eight thousand meters without oxygen, and it, it's rough. It's it's hard going. <laughs> um, and know, I got to the summit. The beauty of Cho Oyu from the, the normal route is you cannot see Everest or the Kumbu until you stand on the very summit of Cho Oyu. You can't see it until you're actually on the top. Ten feet short of the summit, you can't see it. On the top, you get this fantastic layout of Everest and Nupsi and Lhotse and all Pumori and everything else out there. It's spectacular. I got to the top, show you, and I looked out there and I went and laid down on my back and breathed for about five minutes. It was all I could do. Finally, I got up and we took pictures and everything was fine. We got down, okay. Uh, But after that experience, I told myself, um, enough of the 8,000 meters, I think I'll keep it to 7,000 meters now. So for a number of years, I I went back to Aconcagua and some other close to 7,000 meter peaks until all of a sudden I figured, I should probably not go to 7,000 meters anymore. So now 6,000 is good enough for me. Um, I go up to Kilimanjaro almost every year. That's a nice 6,000 meter peak. Uh, Nice, not too hard, I've done it a lot. Uh, But now in Colombia, there are beautiful peaks that are 15, 16, 17,000 feet. um, Nice climbs in beautiful country with very few other people trekking and climbing out there. It's fun, I've been to Colombia five times in the last several years guiding mountains. I've been to Bolivia climbing, guiding in um, Ecuador, quite a bit in Ecuador. So um, there's no reason to stop climbing, and stop guiding. But along the way, because of, you know, I can't keep it up at the pace I used to. Uh, I would, I'd be on guiding high mountains six or seven times a year, going from one to another to another. And, and life was great. I was having fun, making money coming home to my wonderful wife and family and going off again. And she'd come with me part of the time, and then I'd go off. Um, but gradually, my body just won't let me do that anymore as much as I'd love to. It just, it just won't put up with it. So now I, along the way, I've also um, become a pretty good safari guide. I've always been a bird watcher. And now I take people on uh, wildlife safaris, walking safaris in Tanzania, in Kenya, um, in Botswana, uh, specializing in birding, but not only, but you know, wildlife safaris. Uh, we're also, I've been touring a boat in the Galapagos, uh, a 72 foot catamaran, sailing catamaran. And I'll take 10 clients and my wife comes along and my daughter came once, and we go sailing through the Galapagos for a couple of weeks, um, just looking at wildlife and scuba diving. And uh, this is the kind of guiding I'm doing now. I run all different kinds of trips, um i do have at least one climb every year sometimes two uh and that's good that's about right for me um and then i'll go off and do these less physically demanding but in in a way more um intellectually demanding trips um not to say that mountain guiding isn't intellectual which it certainly is but there's the the physical component of mountain guiding is is certainly the major part of it the intellectual part is anticipating the weather and knowing You know, the technical aspects of climbing and all. But wildlife guiding is totally different. You have to really want to know the life cycles of all the animals and the ages and reproductive methods and, um, markings and everything it's really fun it's really challenging and it keeps my brain young and um, many of my old climbing clients also obviously have gotten older and can't can't or don't want to climb anymore so now they're bringing their wives and their kids and sometimes their grandkids on trips with me and we're going off on these uh, really fun trips to different parts of the world so that keeps me going I have no need and no reason and no desire to retire yet because I'm having too much fun doing what I've always done.
0: And where can we find your upcoming trips that you have scheduled? What's well, you can go
1: scheduled? to uh, um www. or email me, skip at skiphorner.com And um, I'm right here. I'll, um, I'll talk you up.
0: <laughs> and I guess circling back, because usually I end it with where can we find you? You knew, um, oh shoot! You you knew Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, mm-hmm. and there aren't very many people alive now that still know them because, again, mountaineering <laughs> there's not a there's not a long life expectancy, really. Um, what would you say about them?
1: Well, I knew Rob pretty well. I only knew Scott in passing. We we met each other here and there. I never worked with. Him. With Scott, um, I just knew him for his humor and his his skill and his charisma. He was a charismatic guy. Holy cow! Um, everybody loved Scott. Well, almost everybody loved Scott. Uh, but Rob, Rob and I did a um, ran a Carstens Pyramid trip together. The same way we were about to do uh, Cho Yu. Uh, I had climbed Carstens once before. That was how I managed to become the first to guide the seven by this earlier Carson's trip which was uh, kind of a severe climb I had two clients and we were from base camp to the summit back to base camp was a 24-hour um, ascent descent uh, through the rain and the fog and uh, it was a it was a real epic um, but we made it uh, Rob had gone to Carson's the following year and couldn't find the route and because it's not obvious it, it really is not an obvious way up um, So he didn't make the top. So we met in Antarctica, we happened to climb Vincent together. um, And so we became friends from there. And uh, he had access or he knew how to get access to a helicopter in New Guinea, where I knew the route. So we combined our forces. He, He had six or seven clients and I had five or six clients and we pulled resources. Um, Hired the helicopter that he knew about that got us over all the boggy, low country, wet, sloppy, muddy, swampy stuff um, and set us down two days lower than the mountain. And then we hiked up acclimatizing to the base of Karstens and we hired two assistant guides to come with us. And so the first day, Rob and the two assistants uh, took his people to the top. Well, no, take it back. The first day, the two assistants and Rob and I, the four of us, climbed the mountain fixed ropes on some of the key pitches, had a great time, it was fun, great day. Four guides out in the mountains in the sun, it was beautiful. Came down, the next day, Rob and those two guys uh, took Rob's clients up and then came back down. And then the third day, again, the two assistant guides and I took my clients to the top and came down. So we had a very successful trip, Uh, really fun people, Uh, had a great trip, Rob and I bonded really well. Um, his wife, Jan, was on the trip, too, and I got to like her quite a bit and uh, knew her from before as well. So um, so I had a pretty good feeling for Rob, and um, Rob was also a charismatic guy. You know, New Zealanders are sort of born with charisma, it seems. They just have that accent and that suaveness and that uh, combination of couldn't care less and couldn't care more attitude it's some, something unique about new zealanders about kiwis and rob had it in spades he was just the coolest guy fun to talk to generous open great listener solid climber um, wonderful man you uh, know i could see rob was going to be a buddy of mine for the rest of my life uh, and then then when he died you know i was just you know i, I was trashed it was terrible it was just terrible
0: Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I know that it's really hard to talk about those moments, those, those in the mountaineering community that are no longer with us.
1: You know, I, I take exception a little bit to that because it's important to talk about these people who died and to talk about how they died because that's how we learn not to die. And we, you talk about it, you publish these stories, people read it, and it helps them hopefully not die when. The time comes um, and i think it's important to talk about them too even to talk about how they died or that they died and um because that helps keep their memory alive because they deserve to have their memory kept alive rob especially wow what a guy scott too although I, like i said i didn't know scott that well but charismatic wonderful generous people who are who died and they died tragically and uh, you could say unnecessarily although doing what they were doing uh, like you say life expectancy of a guide is is not as long as uh, an accountant so um you might have expected that to happen i have a a little bulletin board downstairs by my storeroom where i have photographs of all my friends who have died um and you know there's quite a few photographs on that billboard right now on that uh, chalkboard Um, but Rob is right in the middle, Rob, a big picture of Rob and me on Karsten's and we were big smile on his face, you know, and I, every time I go into my storeroom, I look at that, um, that board and think, all right, there's Rob and there, you know, these other people who I've known in my life too, um, some who have died naturally and at older ages and some who've died tragically at young ages, um, shame to think that ah, these people were so wonderful, so energetic and bright and, and, um, charismatic had they lived another 20 or 30 years as i have um and i've had this great life i mean every day every year of my life has been so cool and theirs would have been too if they had just made it through that particular day when they died if they had just gotten down off the mountain that day they could still be alive now enjoying all this cool stuff that we still have around us that we can still do it's important to keep their memories alive and, and to think about them and to um, to actively think about not dying when situations arrive where you might die. Think about staying alive. It's the best thing.
0: I don't think I've thought of it that way before. I mean, I know we, we talk about those that have died and um, that happens quite frequently on this podcast. But I don't think we've ever really talked about, you know, the lessons learned from those tragedies. And so I think I'm going to be more mindful of that moving forward. And thank you so much for sharing that with us, Skip. I, I appreciate that. Oh,
1: you're and welcome. Good to, you know, it's thank good to you talk so much. You're welcome. This has been thank- fun. I've enjoyed talking with you. <laughs>
0: um thank you so much for doing this with me i i definitely appreciate it and hopefully we'll hear more from you in the future
1: all right you know where i live
0: and that is it for today's episode thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed interviewing skip there's not a lot of mountaineers left from his generation and his story and the story of those in the mountaineering community that are still alive from that era are very important. Speaking of which, I have another interview scheduled for next week for the podcast. I'm not going to say who it is, but he is from Skip's generation and he has a lot of experience as a guide, as a business owner, I've never interviewed anyone from his country before. And if I say much more than that, you might guess who it is. But I reached out to him a couple days ago and he said, absolutely. Let's do the interview. And I really hope that it happens. Fingers crossed until next time, climb your own climb. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. We would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.